0: Have you ever felt stuck, trapped, not where you want to be or expected you'd be at this time in your life? For many of us, as I'm recording this, that's the situation we've been in with the COVID lockdowns and the many ways that it's put life on hold. But for all of us, no matter what we're trapped in, emotionally, physically, or spiritually, the book of Exodus and the life of Moses can encourage, inspire, and teach us, as we'll see in our lesson today. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. Those are the issues we'll discuss in our lesson today, entitled, Exodus, a new beginning for Moses, Israel, and for us. Where we are in the Bible. At the end of Genesis, Jacob, who is now called Israel, took his family to Egypt to escape the famine in Canaan. God prepared the way by sending Joseph ahead of the family to Egypt. Now, he used kind of an unusual way to do it. His brothers sold him into slavery to get him there. But as God so often does, God took an impossible situation where he took Joseph out of prison and made him a ruler in Egypt. And through Joseph, God gave Jacob's family a safe protected and privileged place in Egypt where for the next 400 years they could grow as a nation. But then things changed as the book of Exodus begins, in the Bible, a new Pharaoh comes on the scene who no longer protects the Jews, but forces them into slavery. Now, not only does the book change, but I want to note that our experience of either reading or listening to the Bible also changes with the book of Exodus. Up to this point, it's been, in many ways, very easy reading or listening to the true stories of the creation, the Tower of Babel, the flood, the start of the family of Jacob that eventually becomes the nation of Israel. But about halfway into the book of Exodus, after the incredible story of the Exodus, and as they're on their way to the Promised Land, things start to change. And we get into a lot of lists and rules and regulations in the next four books. And, quite honestly, that can be very challenging to read. And it's a time where many people bail out. But please don't do that. Don't stop there. It's very important that we keep on. And what follows, the laws, the rules, the regulations, they aren't just for the people in the past. But, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in First Corinthians 10, where he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ." Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Oh, that is not a good thing that happened. And Paul goes on then to tell us why this happened, and why they died, and what it teaches us. And he goes on to say, Now these things occurred not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. These books, that ends the scripture reading of it, these books are a warning for all of us, especially, as it says, if we don't think we need it. Now, the warning works in these ways. Here's what these books are going to teach us. First, they underscore, throughout all of these books, that God always has a people but also that not everyone on earth is automatically his people, his child. Sometimes people say, oh, we're all the children of God. Well, yes, we're God's creation, but God always has a special people. Now, to become his people, to be his people, the Israelites, first of all, they had to believe Moses, and they had to move out of Egypt. Today it's different. Today we must accept Jesus as our Savior. Doing those things makes us individually his child and part of his people. Second, what these books tell us is they tell us what God expects of his people after salvation. This is so important. People just think that somehow salvation and accepting God's grace, that's just some goodie that we pluck off the shelves and it's all for our benefit, all for us, and then we can do whatever we want to afterwards. It isn't that way at all. We need to look at this a little more closely. For Israel, their salvation was salvation from slavery in Egypt. God worked miracles for them. For us, It is salvation from the penalty of our sins, which is death, as Romans 6.23 puts it, when it says, the wages of sin is death. Death means a life without significant purpose while we're still on earth, even though it might be filled with lots of fun and goodies and stuff and etc. And then eternal damnation when we die. Now, people don't like to hear that they don't like to hear that if you know they just leave God alone that that may, m- might mean an eternity of of suffering people don't want really to hear that but it's true and we have to let people know that i have to tell you that or I'm not being honest with what I truly believe the Word of God says. There are also consequences to our choices, and these books tell us what makes a life-giving choice and what choices lead to spiritual and eternal death. Even though it might seem like they're boring and hard to read in places, they are so important to us. We need to read them because we need to learn how to live. As 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, we need to learn how to live as God's people in our personal lives, in how we worship, and in the world. We can't just do what we want. What was acceptable in Egypt was not always acceptable to God and God is very specific about his requirements. The rest of the Old Testament is going to make much more sense to you as we go through the different cycles of blessing and judgment for Israel and for individuals when you understand the ground rules that are presented in these books. God doesn't just punish people arbitrarily. He doesn't just smack you because he's tired of how you're acting or whatever. He very clearly in these books says you are to be my people, This is my covenant. This is what I want you to do. This is what I expect from you. This is very clear. And then he also says this is what will happen if you don't follow the rules. The material that you will be reading is complex. And quite honestly, it's sometimes challenging to get through. But I'll be sharing overviews, insights, commentary, and applications for you each week. So now let's jump right in and get going on this. Now, as the story often is, it starts with the story of one man, the story of Moses. And many people are familiar with this. Maybe they saw the movie The Ten Commandments, which had Some inaccuracies, but in spite of what nitpicking people say, I think they, you know, the thing overall was really a a pretty good telling of the story. And we all know how he was a little baby and and was, was put into the Nile River. And this story takes place some 430 years of silence, after 430 years of silence since Joseph's death. And As I said, it begins with the story of Moses. He was born an Israelite, but because his family actually obeyed Pharaoh's orders, they said, throw all the male children into the Nile River. Well, they put him in the Nile River, but they put him in a little boat, (laughs) and so he would be safe. And how they knew to do that, God must have spoken very specifically to them because his sister is also watching and she sees that Pharaoh's daughter, who is most likely a woman named Hatshepsut, picked Moses up out of the water. Now, I'm hoping to do another uh, video where I'll show you pictures and he- hieroglyphics of her and tell you more of her story because it's just a fascinating story. But she was an extremely powerful woman. so. Pharaoh's daughter most likely Hatshepsut um, she picks him up out of the river. And then we don't know anything about him except we know he was raised in a very powerful, wealthy, protected environment. The next time we really meet him, he's an adult. Somehow he knew his calling was to be the deliverer of his people. But he did a very similar thing to what Joseph did. Joseph knew when he was really young that he was going to have a very powerful place. But what does he do? He doesn't wait. He's not humble. He doesn't just trust in God, he brags about it to his brothers. He becomes very arrogant and obnoxious, and because of that, they sell him as a slave. Moses, he sort of did the same thing. He decides to become a deliverer in his way, and so he kills an Egyptian that was abusing his fellow Israelite. Now, obviously, that did not go well. Um, Moses was labeled as a murderer and he had to flee for his life. He runs to Midian, where he spends forty years. The next time we see him, he's now an old man. He's eighty years old. Maybe he was someone who is filled with regret. Maybe he was someone who is just satisfied with a simple life. We don't know. His days were winding down. But one day, a bush was burning. And when he turned to look at it, he heard a voice. And as Exodus 3, 7 through 10 tells us, God spoke to him and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seeing the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses was hesitant. He said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. A key in any calling from God. It's not about you. It's about the God who calls you. When Moses said, Who am I? (laughs) It's a wonder God didn't just say, You know, that's kind of the point, Moses. (laughs) You are not anybody. But Almighty God has chosen you. And God will be with you. God goes on to tell Moses a new name for himself. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, some comments and application from this. God can call you at any time in your life, from any place, no matter how isolated or shut in it might be. God is incredibly creative in his callings. And now think about kind of the switch here. He called Abraham out of an advanced civilization into the desert and to relative isolation for the rest of his life. But then he called Moses out of the wilderness back to an advanced civilization, from isolation to lead over a million people. What God calls you to, He has prepared you for. Moses was educated, literate, well acquainted with Pharaoh's court, and he also knew what a nomadic life was like. He knew what the desert was like. He was fully rounded in his preparation to do all the things that God called him to do. Also, Age does not matter in God's call, young or old. You see, we're eternal people. Age doesn't matter. God doesn't look at that when he calls people because he's the one that gives us strength at any time in our lives to do what he wants us to do. After much complaining, questions, hesitations, Moses submits, and though he didn't know it, he goes on to do things and write materials that will change the course of human history. What first comes to mind when we think of what Moses accomplished is the deliverance of his people, but equally important, was the writing of Job and the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These books are the foundation for human life and law, for our understanding of God, for the rest of His message to us, and to help us understand ourselves. Imagine for a minute if these books had never been written. We really can't, because they're a core of human history, of our law, of how we treat people, of all of the teachings in the New Testament. So many things are based on these books. In many ways, these books form, even if we aren't as familiar with them as we should be, all who we are, in many ways, all our civilization is. Think then also of the time that Moses had to spend listening to God to write it all down, while at the same time serving as leader of a complaining, ungrateful multitude of people. Some comments and application about what we just talked about. If you're still alive, God isn't finished with you. Now, though, the challenge I'm about to give is for really everyone who feels maybe they've been shut away or sidelined because of COVID or many other reasons. If you're just kind of sitting around in your life or, or whatever, I, it's, it's for everyone. But I want to specifically address this challenge to my cohort, the Baby Boomer Generation. So listen up, Baby Boomers. What are you doing to finish well? Think back. We were the Jesus People generation. We invented the one-way sign. Our generation created modern gospel music. We created Christian coffee shops, Christian communes, huge Christian festivals, and we had an overarching emphasis that people needed to know Jesus as their personal Savior, and we did all we could to help them come to know him. We handed out tracts, and we did um, what they would call cold turkey witnessing, and we held all kinds of gospel meetings, and we, we did just all sorts of things. And though the Jesus People Movement had its problems, it was powerful. Powerful. It was passionate in its desire to follow God. And I'd like to ask all of you, what are you passionate about now? Now, interacting with grandkids and playing golf can be great fun, and so is shopping, and even more than that, traveling is very enjoyable. Now, none of these or many other retirement activities that is if you can afford to retire, are inherently evil. No guilt here. I really don't want to make you feel guilty. But if you have time and health, there's room for so much more. Room to recover a passion to see God work in mighty ways in your life. You might not think of where you are as as sort of being trapped in Egypt or trapped in something, but even good things can trap us from doing all that God wants us to do. And I'm quite sure for all of you young, old baby boomers, wherever you are, that most likely God has a bush burning for you. There's something or something more he wants to do so you can finish strong. Take some time to think about it. Pray about it. Our world has incredible needs and many of the people around you still need Jesus. I know boomers who are working at food share, serving as an advocate for the homeless. I know one ninety year old lady who runs an incredible tutoring after school program that reaches many people and their families. And these people are all still involved in many other enjoyable and family activities all their lives. And communities are much richer for it, but they haven't retired from pursuing a passion for God. Regardless of your age, keep your eyes open for that burning bush. Now back to our story. God does not forget his people or his promises. He's at work even if we don't see it. After his preparation and call, God sends Moses to Egypt. He confronts Pharaoh who refuses to let the people go. Now that, again, was not a good idea. God then sends 10 plagues against the gods, the pride of Egypt. Now one of the things that's easy to ignore, unless you kind of block it out in the story, is the plagues last actually 10 months. So there's quite a bit of time there. And again and again, God says, I'm doing this so that the Egyptian people will also know me. Now, the final one, of course, is the death of the firstborn of Egypt, while those under the Passover blood, where God told them, he instituted the Passover, where he told them to sacrifice a lamb, and then put its blood on the doorposts, if that was on a home, God did not destroy the firstborn child. And when that happens and all the children and livestock, too, their firstborn in Egypt die, Pharaoh finally has had enough and he lets the people go. They leave the land at last. Now, they face some early challenges after God frees them. Because Pharaoh changes his mind. The Israelites are hemmed in by the Red Sea. For ten months, though, they've seen incredible miracles of judgment against Egypt. They're going free with riches that have been given to them by the Egyptians after 400 years of slavery. They have ample reason to trust God. Do they? No. Immediately, they start to complain and cry. God opens the sea, though, and they go through. Now you'd think, after all this and all the previous miracles, that they would trust God when additional trials come. But that doesn't happen. Three days into the desert and they can't find water. So what do they do? Do they rejoice? Do they say, Wow, here's an opportunity to trust God? No. They grumble. They complain they whine. So God graciously gives them water. Then they grumble about the food. They don't have enough. They don't have this. They don't have that. God gives them manna, which the word manna actually in Hebrew means, what is it? You know, they couldn't be out what is it? But it was these little tiny things and they could, you know, cook it and they can make bread out of it. And they could do all sorts of things with it. Now, in God giving them the manna, it also says that when He gave it to them the way He did it, it was part of a test. And here is what the test was. He said, on six days, they were to gather it every day for six days, but then on the sixth day, they were to gather double the amount of manna, and they were to rest on the seventh day. God said, this is going to be a test. Now, some people obeyed and did that. Some didn't, and it said that the, um, they, they tried to um, go out to get some that morning, and uh, it, there wasn't any, so they had to go hungry for that day. God was teaching them, though, that the Sabbath was a gift along with the food. In their years as slaves, I imagine they had few days off and no free food. If you are looking at the video of this, I actually have a picture of an Egyptian calendar that was really complex. But as a little historical note, the Egyptian week was actually 10 days long, and it was more of an administrative type thing. It was not designed so 10 days and a day of rest or whatever. There were periodic religious festivals, but there is no, we have no record of a weekly day of rest. And most likely because it was an agrarian society, and also they were involved in all kinds of big projects, they probably had little time off because there was always work to be done. So... Most likely, the Hebrews had worked for many years with very few days off. Now, the food that they had was freely provided, they didn't have to work for it, and they were given a day of rest every seven days. Now, I want to have a few minutes of comment and application regarding this seventh day, regarding the Sabbath. One of the questions that I was asked years ago, and I thought this was really good, so I'll ask it of you, it was when someone asked, Are we still living like slaves, and not taking the rest we could and should take in Jesus? Do we still work seven days a week, regardless of what he's given us? Now, This is not the place where I'm going to argue about the details of the Sabbath. Is it Saturday or is it Sunday? And exactly what constitutes rest? Is going to a movie restful or is that sinful? Are sports restful or are they sinful? Is working in my garden restful? Or, you know, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. The Bible is not specific and consistent on the details after we get out of the Old Testament that this is one area that things do change. Because Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he consistently, quote-unquote, broke the Sabbath to do good, to care for others. He infuriated the religious leaders about it because he didn't follow their Sabbath rules. And even though in the Old Testament it's interesting We have the example of where the Jews did not rest for 52 days. They didn't take a Sabbath while they were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And God commended them for that work. I think the main point here is, do we trust God? Or do we think that our success in everything and our work or our spiritual lives depends totally on us and how hard we work? I know I have a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of work to do in this area because it's so easy to think if we just don't keep grinding away seven days a week, don't ever rest, that nothing will get done. But think about it, pray about it, and ask God to help you answer how he wants you to rest because he wants us to rest in him. Ultimately, all that we do, the success for everything that we do, is dependent on him. After this test comes a big battle, an attack from the Amalekites. Now, they were consistently the enemies of Israel. And it's interesting, Deuteronomy, which we'll get to in about seven weeks, um... This tells us a little bit more about this situation. And here's how it comments, It looking back on it. It says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind, the women, the children. They had no fear of God. Now Moses told Joshua to gather an army and go fight them. He did that, he goes into battle, and then Moses is up on the top of the mountain praying for them. And then we have a really interesting passage where it talks about as long as Moses' arms are held up in prayer, they win. And when he tires, they lose. So then Aaron and her hold up his arms until the army is defeated. Now, there's some really interesting lessons from this story. Uh, Charles Spurgeon actually made an excellent comment on it that has um, really meant a lot to me, where he said that what this passage teaches us is about the importance of both prayer and action. He reminds us that Moses is on the mountain praying. But while Moses is praying, and that's so essential, Joshua is down in the valley fighting, bloody hand-to-hand combat. He says both are important and both are needed. I've used this illustration quite a bit in my work with church communicators where I remind them that you need to pray and pray and pray about all the work that you do. But if you don't actually get those things printed or put online and out there, nothing's going to happen. Yes, we pray, we must always pray, but usually there is also much work to be done and it is often detailed, boring, brutal work. For example, to have an effective small group ministry, and I'm speaking from experience on this because my my uh, pastor husband has been in charge of small group ministries with a number of churches, and I've worked on all the backup work for it. You can pray all you want, and you want to pray quite a bit, but, You've got to find curriculum. You've got to have an overall plan, a purpose. You need to communicate your plans, your purposes. You've got to cast vision. Uh, one year at one church, I, th- I thought we had a really good slogan for that. Our slogan for the small groups was everyone in one, everyone in one. And uh, we actually ended up getting over 90% of the people that attended the church in a small group, but you've, you've got to do that. You've got to train leaders. You've got to organize the groups. I can't tell you how many times I've put together you know sign-up sheets and description things and you put them online and you put them out on sign-up tables and you, oh, you just do all sorts of things like that. You have to use many communication formats to recruit people. You have to use online and print and you send things out and you have to do it again and again and again because Communication theory tells us people have to hear something at least seven times before they even begin to accept it at all. You must, once it gets going, you have to encourage leaders, celebrate the successes, share stories, and then when you think you've got that all done, you've got to repeat and do it again. Without this work, you may have some scattered small groups in your church, and many churches have that. But you won't have the powerful discipleship and outreach tool that small group ministry can be if you don't put the needed organized and intentional work into them and it's like that in every area of ministry. And this early example from Moses and Joshua, you must pray. Consistent, persistent prayer is essential, but you also have to work, and sometimes that means a lot of fighting. The second important lesson from this encounter with the Amalekites, they learned how to fight and win. They were slaves newly out of Egypt, and yet they fought a formidable foe and defeated them. Now, my comment application here, battles should teach us something. They aren't simply a trial to get through and be done with. This is really important when you think about it. They should have remembered this as they were about to go into the land. They were fearful of the battles ahead, but God had given them an early experience of victory, and obviously they forgot. I would encourage you to consider journaling, how God has helped you in the past, and this can enable you to trust him in future trials when you review what he has done in your life. And then they finally arrive at Sinai. When they left Egypt, they were simply a group of slaves. God will now work to make them into a people, a nation, to serve Him. To do that, they need to learn everything! How to worship, how to govern their nation, how to live in their interpersonal lives next he's going in our readings he's going to give them the 10 commandments and the other laws which it's his right to do because he told them from the start he was the i am god who brought them out of egypt now one thing that's really exciting god isn't just i am for israel in a story long ago because Remember, I subtitled this lesson, A New Beginning for Moses, Israel, and Us. And the reason I did that is because God is also the great I Am for each of us. And what is really exciting is even more so than in the Old Testament, Jesus finished the start of that statement when in the Gospel of John, He tells us, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. He is all those things for each of us. He has a plan for you. Even though you may not see it yet, He has equipped you for it, even though you may not be aware of it or may have even forgotten his equipping. Keep your eyes open for that burning bush. Move forward and finish strong. That's all for now. Check out the notes from this lesson, Bible Reading Schedules, Related Resources, Helpful Links at www.bible805.com I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.